Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome author Solari Gentile. She is the author of the Roland Sinclair series, The Hero Trilogy. We had a really fun discussion. It is a recorded show, so please don't call in. Here's Solari. Hi, Solari. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sherry. It's a pleasure to be with you. All the way across the ocean. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, several I'm, oceans. I half the ocean. I, I live inland in Australia, in the country. So I'm in the bush. You're in the bush? Oh. How cool. Well, my only knowledge of the bush is from movies, so what can I say? We're a fair height from any ocean. Um, I think I'd have to go maybe six or seven hundred kilometers to the east to find an ocean. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you're right in the center. Uh, not, not, not in the centre. Australia is a very big country. Um, so I'm still in New South Wales, which is one of the eastern states, but I'm inland. So I'm uh, on what uh, the Australia has a huge mountain range running down its eastern side. And in fact, there's two. So the first mountain range is the Great Divide, which is the Blue Mountains. And then there's another mountain range uh, west of that called the Snowy Mountains, and I live in the Snowy Mountains. Interesting. You live in the Snowy Mountains. That's pretty. It sounds really pretty. <laughs> it is very pretty. It's beautiful. It's um, it's very, uh, well, it's one of the cooler areas of Australia. Um, in fact, the coolest. Um, so at the moment, I'm standing outside in my backyard, which is a native forest. We had the bushfires recently, so... Yeah. There's a lot of charred trees around, but uh, a lot of the natural woodland is coming back now. And everything is green, and it's beautiful. And in a month or two, we'll be under snow. Oh, gosh. And it's kind of weird. Strange year. I mean, first you had those horrible fires. And yes, we did. A lot of wildlife, animals, and plants that are one of a kind to your country uh, were majorly damaged. Um, yeah, yeah, over a, a billion. Did yeah, they, say, or they said something like that. Yeah, and I mean, and your country has some of the most beautiful wildlife and some of the most beautiful agriculture plants and things. It just makes breaks my heart to think that several billion are gone or are, are, are in danger. It's just scary. Yep. It is. It's, you know, Australia is one of those countries that is that burns naturally, but this was an unnatural fire. It was incredibly hot. We've, we've been um, taking the brunt of climate change and our um, our governments have been ignoring it, uh, so it has been getting hotter and drier. So we came off a very long drought into a very, very hot summer, and when it started to burn, you just couldn't put the fires out. The, the fronts were so huge 
that you just had to basically try and get people out of the way and contain until it rained. And that's what we were facing, uh, fires that just kept burning for months at a time. They said that that the koala bears were wiped out. It was their part, their food that was pretty much wiped out. There were there are colonies of koalas that were wiped out, but they're like any animal. So if you look at, um, I don't know, the equivalent in America, maybe wild horses. They don't just exist in one place. They exist in several different places. So particular herds may be wiped out, but not every horse. So similarly, particular colonies of koalas were wiped out, but not every koala. So we're hopeful that we'll be able to bring them back and that in time they will start to breed and repopulate and um, become strong in their populations again. But it's just one of those things, wombats and uh, and possums and uh, the, the amount of wildlife that just couldn't escape these fires because they were so big and there was nowhere to run. So normally in Australia, we have fires and certainly Indigenous Australians, Australians have been doing cool burns and native burns as a, as a method of, uh, of landscape um, control for you know, thousands of years. Uh, what happened here was that the fire was so hot and so strong that there was no running from it. Uh, the fire front was so huge. Both my husband and my son are, are firefighters, are volunteer firefighters. So in Australia, the rural fires, the, the wildfires, are fought by volunteers. There's no actual fire force. So they're you know, they're teachers and accountants and electricians and so on who put on firefighting gear on the weekend and they go out and they fight the fires. And my husband and my son were doing that. And Edmund was sending me back photos from the front and the fire, you know, the fire front or the flames were 50, 60 metres high. They were huge. Um, so you didn't stand a chance. And so when a fire is that big, it throws embers a couple of kilometres ahead of it. Um, so things start catching two kilometres away from the fire from the embers thrown by that fire. Um, so it was quite a, uh, an interesting time. <laughs> it was um, uh, quite an alarming time. Batlow is, uh, is a little town in the mountains that was told it was undefendable and we were expected to burn to the ground, the whole town. We didn't, uh, and mainly because our firefighters went out there and fought anyway. Uh, but it was a very strange time. Yeah, I mean, really, really strange. And then on top of that, the world gets the damn coronavirus. Yes, exactly. Then we all get a cold. <laughs> it was yeah. awful. I mean, it's been awful. You guys are in lockdown too, aren't you? We are. We uh, seem to... We, we seem to have um, escaped more easily than America. So I was in America in November on tour, and, um, and it's, it's really strange to turn on the television and see the reports about what's happening in New York, having been there so recently. And it's heartbreaking and horrifying, and you know, really hard to believe. 
that this could happen. So Australia was, ha I mean, I think Australia has the benefit of the fact that it's an island far away from everywhere else. So we had a little bit of extra time and we clamped down as soon as we knew. So we closed the island off. Everybody went into lockdown. Schools been out for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, we have all been living in our houses for weeks and weeks and weeks and not going to work unless we're part of an essential service. And because Australia is so sparsely populated, we have, I think our population is not quite 30 million, but our country is the size of America. And so we're spread out naturally. We, we aren't in those, generally speaking, we aren't in those sort of close communities that you see in New York where people are living very close together. And so coronavirus really hasn't uh, run rampant through Australia yet, at least. We've only, as of this morning, I think our death toll was 62. Um, well, and our contained. people with coronavirus in the country was only about 6,000. That's really contained. Uh, yeah. It's really contained. So if we don't, if we don't lose it now, I mean, the problem with it now is that people think, oh, it's all over. We can go back to normal. But it's not. It can, you know, as long as we have coronavirus in the country, it can go nuts at any point. We just have to stay in isolation and, and keep the curve down for as long as it takes to make sure that um, uh, it isn't going to run rampant. Well, what they need is an inoculation. Yeah, but that won't happen for... Uh, 18 months even you know they have got some really good candidates uh, even in Australia we've got some really good candidates uh, for an inoculation but in order to get the testing in place to make sure that the inoculation doesn't kill, doesn't them kill you yeah or whatever else they they've got to test it properly and Australia is very very strict about that kind of thing so that won't happen uh, I mean we've been told not to expect anything for at least 18 months. That doesn't mean that they can't find improvements, I suppose, in the way that they treat coronavirus. So it may be that they can't find a vaccine, but they can find better ways to treat it. So at the moment, they have almost nothing except intubating and ventilating you, uh, if you get to that stage. But it may be that, you know, in a few months, they find a better way of helping you and treating it. Um, so certainly, you know, when you have things, when you have things like the polio epi epidemic, they found better ways to treat polio long before they found a vaccine for polio. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we, it, it, you know, there is hope that things will will get better, and it won't be so bleak. Yeah, it's been strange here too. I mean, we have they were smart here in California when it, it hit San Francisco, they locked down the entire state. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's uh, why it's not as bad here as New York, because they didn't do that there. It's, it's pretty good in California, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not perfect. I mean, San Francisco's got it bad. There's, there's stuff in L.A., there's stuff here in San Diego, but they're contained, and it's not yeah. spread throughout every part of every, because these places are spread out. People yeah. don't realize San Diego is really big. Los Angeles is yeah. really big. Uh, oh, we, 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 we noticed that when we, we came up the West Coast and uh, drove uh, basically from Phoenix all the way up to San Francisco. 
um, stopping at various places, and, and we saw how <laughs> spread out you were. Yeah, very big. Um, yeah, it's very much like a yeah, um, Australian. It's just, yeah, it's just, a, it's, okay, I'll give you a weird example, but it's an example for me. When I, I've read a lot of murder mysteries, and especially Agatha Christie, and they, she talked about Bath a few times, and also in Jane Austen, she talked about Bath. So, I'm expecting the small little town, you know, with a big church and Roman Bath. And uh, the you know the pl different places that they describe in in both books. We were driving up in the bus and bus tour, and it, there was houses and buildings all over. And I'm like, we're, I'm a you know, bus driver. I said, where are we? He goes, we're in the bath. I go, this is bath. He goes, oh yeah, you want the city is down about ten kilometers, but we're almost there. And I'm like, I was like. Oh, shut! It was huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I um, I haven't been to myself, um, <laughs> but I can imagine. I think um, England is is a different scenario again, which is why they're having um, such a problem there, in that it is a highly populated but small country. Um, and I think that's, I mean, I think that's been the difference. I, think that, I mean, I suppose the benefit for Australia is that Corona hit as we were still in our summer. Um, so when it wasn't flu season anyway, so that might have been the slowdown. Yeah. But as we're going into winter now, we might see a, a, a spike in Corona cases. Yeah, it's it's a really weird thing, and also it's just strange that um, we've been, you know, my brother is one of the essentials, so he leaves. Yeah. I work from home anyway, so the yeah. only real big effects that I have were three things. One is I didn't get to go to my yoga class, yeah. <laughs> which I miss. I'm doing Skype yeah. yoga, but it just isn't the same. Um... And another one is that I used to meet uh, two of my girlfriends for coffee on Saturday, which I can't do. And we Skype, but not the same. Um, <laughs> and the other thing is, when my brother had a day off, we would, because we were brought up in L.A. and we came to San Diego for vacation, so there's parts of San Diego I still haven't seen. So yeah. on my brother's days off, we go to different places that we hadn't been yet. And that's stopped dead. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, see, for us, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a hermit anyway, and we live in a little quiet uh, part of the world. So staying at home is just normal for me. Um, I just stay at home and write. But the difference for me was that they closed the schools. And um, my son is now at home, and um, you know my and my husband can't go anywhere outside work. He's a school principal, so he comes home from school at a normal time because there's no after-school meetings, etc. And suddenly, my house is full of people where it used to be empty, and so I'm not isolated enough in some way. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lot noisier than they used to be. 
Uh, whereas once upon a time, I'd get up, everybody would be out of the house by 7.30, 8 o'clock, and nobody would come back till 4. And I'd have all that time just to spend with words and to write. Uh, but now there's always someone there, um, always someone that needs to be fed <laughs> or wants to tell me about their day. Um, so that's where the, the difference is for me rather than actually um, missing the, the going out. So I do, I do miss that. I do miss actually um, going to talk to fellow writers. So my, um, because I, I live in such a, a quiet, isolated place, Every month or so, I just sort of get in the car and drive to Canberra and and catch up with um, Karen Warren, who I know you know, mm -hmm. uh, Karen Biggers and all my writer friends in Canberra, and we go go out to dinner and chat, and then I feel I feel steady again and inspired, and I come home and write for another couple of months, uh, and then I'd go out and talk to people again. Um, but that's all changed. Um, I can't give back any. Um, so yeah, look, it's, it's it's interesting how how social isolation impacts on people. Um, it's it's weird in in Batlow at the moment, I suppose, because after the fires, people became very um, connected to each other. So because we came so close to losing the entire town and losing everybody in it. Um, when it, it became that after the fires, when you saw people, you would you would hug them, and the the greeting changed from hello to I'm glad you're still here. Um, and then coronavirus came, and you weren't allowed to touch anybody anymore, and you weren't allowed to visit anybody anymore. So I think where it's where it's really changed for this moment on the social uh, space for us in Batlow uh, after the bushfires is at the time when we probably needed social cohesion and social contact the most, we can't have it. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. The other thing that has come up, at least here, I, I, I probably there too, is how much stuff you could get online like um, we have a Globe Theatre that's sort of like the Globe in England. That it's, it's actually it's supposed to be exactly like it. That's here in downtown San Diego. And they they had to cancel their whole season, you know, all theatres and movie theatres and yep. all that. So they've been doing uh, stuff online for everybody yep. for free. You know, you don't pay. Um, and, and also listening to Patrick Stewart do his... Um, doing the sonnets for people on Instagram. I just love that. Um, you know, people have been so generous with that kind of thing. So what do you think about the online entertainment? Oh, look, I think, it, I think it's wonderful. Um, I think it's incredibly generous. Um, I think perhaps hopefully one of the, the things that will come out of coronavirus on the other side is that people will remember when things were tough, they turned to the arts. Yes, and how important it is. Uh, writers and singers to keep them sane. Um, so it's, yeah, look, it's, I, I, I think it's wonderful and it's generous and it's, it's a, a reaching out to people and a connection. Um, it's 
also, I mean, it also makes it very noisy too, in terms of, so as someone who is looking for, for quiet so that I can write, sometimes I have to pull myself off line so that I'm not bombarded with all these wonderful distractions that make me go down rabbit holes or, you know, all these, all these little YouTube clips that I click on and, you know, to see what people are doing and all of a sudden, four hours later, I'm still there. <laughs> so, oh, I know. So, they have them so all I, connected to each other. So you like, you watch one and then they, it goes right to, oh, that one's interesting too. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes, and sometimes it's uh, incredibly sad. Um, I know in in Australia there have been a huge number of writers who've brought out books in Corona time. Mm -hmm. Now I'm one of them. I have two books that came out after COVID, after the social isolation and the shutdown was declared. But I'm a bit long in the tooth as a writer, so I've been at, in the game for 10 years. I've had 14 books, so I've had my launches and I've had I've had the the, the writers' festivals and all the wonderful accessories that go with writing a book. But there are writers out there who are putting out their first book and all of a sudden their launch has been cancelled mm -hmm. and bookshops have been closed and there's no panels anymore in those festivals. And you watch them, they, they do their launch online. And so in Australia, uh, the artistic community rallied to actually have a launch um, situation so that people could launch their books online and and whilst that's wonderful it's also incredibly sad for these people because they're sitting there and what should be this wonderful night um, celebrating their first book they're talking to a computer screen yeah and seeing that someone is out there listening and um, and I really feel for them um, I, you know, this for for those of us who have published before and so on, it's a loss, but it isn't as amazing and phenomenal a loss. I still, you know, after 14 books, remember my first book launch and the euphoria of it and the magnificence of it, just because it was the first. And it's those moments that help you live with the rigors of this life, because it is a tough life being a writer. You're you sort of put yourself out there all the time for people to comment and criticize and judge. And quite often, you know, people also love your work, but there's, there's also people who don't and yeah. so on. And so you have to be tough. And one of the things that helps you get through that is moments like the first book launch. Um, and so those things are lost, and they're lost forever. You can't ever have a first book launch again. Um, so I, I really... I really think there's a whole stack of quiet losses, and because everybody has lost, uh, everybody is mm -hmm. suffering through COVID. It's you know it's almost lo it, it almost disappears. Your your personal sadness almost disappears in this greater sadness uh, and this greater loss of the community. So it's not even marked as such. So I I, I really. I really, I, I, I try to attend as many online book launches as I can, um, but I, and, and whilst I celebrate those books, I just feel so much for those poor authors. I know. Um, because, That's sad. You know, they, they, yeah, they spent so long working on this book, dreaming about this night, 
And you do. When you're an aspirant writer, you dream about that first book launch and the, the night when you suddenly enter the world of being a published writer. And it's all just being pulled out from under them. I know. I was thinking about that. I was also thinking about the poor kids from junior high and high school who will, and college who don't get their senior year. Exactly. You don't get their, I suppose you have proms there, we yeah. have graduation. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and even university students. That's what I mean. don't get put on the gown. And the, so all those ceremonies that are lost, people who's off their weddings, um, anniversaries, um, you know, significant parties. Uh, so many of my friends have had their, their children turn 18 this year. And in Australia, the 18th That's a big deal. Marvel. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big But that will be spent in isolation and quietly and alone. And even more so, the little kids, you don't understand. Yeah. Why can't uh, I have a birthday party? Or Yeah. Exactly. And you know when you were little, you waited all year for your birthday mm. party. Yeah. And I grew, up in a, I grew up in a household where we only ever, ever got three birthday parties. And there were special years. So you got a birthday party when you were 10. You got one when you were 13, and you got one when you were 16. Um, so especially that one when you were 10, you waited for it. <laughs> you were thinking about your 10th birthday party from the time you were 8. Um, so I can just imagine um, how, how they would have felt. So there's so many moments in people's lives that have been changed and lost by social isolation. And maybe, I mean, maybe one of the things that will come out of this realizing in this age of devices and uh, connectivity through the net is that we really value society and we really value human beings and being with human beings. And maybe that will change the way we relate a little bit, um, perhaps for the better. I agree. That's what it's like not to be able to touch someone. That's what I've been saying. I've been saying that maybe this is a bad thing that may become positive because yes. people will realize, how many times have you walked in an elevator and all the people are looking down because and have their faces lit by their cell phone? I mean, yes. they're completely absorbed in their electronic world. Well, the, the Chief Medical Officer of Australia was talking about the fact that he thinks the handshake is now a thing of the past, that we'll never go back to the handshake. And I mourn that. I love the handshake. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think there'll be a way to... I think it'll change. I, maybe yeah. gloves will come well, back, you know, the little white gloves that they used to wear yeah. in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, perhaps perhaps we'll go back to kid loves. Yeah, um, and 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 a nice little hat, pretty pretty little hat. Maybe in a California summer, but <laughs> I used to wear those not a lot, but I mean for like uh, temple for certain holidays and uh, yeah. and uh, bar mitzvahs, weddings, stuff like that. We used to, but I was a little girl, but we used to wear gloves. Yeah. But that was the yeah. 60s. <laughs> well, I mean, gloves have made a bit of a resurgence lately in Australia as a fashion accessory in the winter. Um, so certainly where I live, it's cold enough to wear gloves, and I have several pairs. 
um, I've got, well, I quite like them. I just think there's a, a certain elegance to putting exactly. them on and taking them off. And I, and because I'm a gardener and a, and I paint and I sculpt and so on, my hands are always in terrible shape. My nails are broken and so on. Um, and I've got cuts and bruises and stuff on my hands all the time because I'm working with them. And gloves are <laughs> a lovely way to disguise all them. So we should bring back the gloves. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a good, there's a, there's a trend we need. <laughs> you all go, everybody go out and invest in glove companies. <laughs> I still have a bunch of gloves from my mother and my grandma, so I'm set. <laughs> oh, well, uh, this, I have uh, gloves that were from my husband's grandparents. I'm, I'm an immigrant, so I came from a, a, I was born in a tropical country, nobody ever wore gloves, but my husband's grandparents. Uh, would wear would wear gloves and um, but they seem to have much smaller hands in those days. I have tiny hands. Um, so yeah, with delicate little hands. <laughs> I'm not forgetting you, Daniel, but... I, got, I, have, I have little hands like my mom, so... Not as little as my grandma. My grandma was tiny. She was she was smaller than everybody. Oh, well, I, I haven't got long fingers. I can't play the piano. Uh, but I've got really strong hands. Because, you know, I, I've lived out here and you work with your hands all the mm -hmm. time and, you know, you've got to chop wood and and build fences and do whatever. Um, and I've noticed that since I was, even since I was a teenager, because I was a city kid that moved out to the country, my hands have got much bigger and stronger uh, than they were when I was in my 20s. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> Uh, we we don't have a lot of time, so I want to give you a lot of time for your book. Um, okay. Which book would you like to talk about, or do you want to talk about both? What what book do you want to bring up? Um, the Rolling Stone question. I can talk about the series. Uh, that gives us scope. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so the the Rolling Sinclair series in in Australia. It, I've just released the tenth book. I think in the US. The seventh book has just been released with the, the eighth book due in June. Um, so they've got, a, they've got a sort of a quicker schedule to catch up. Um, it's, uh, the, it's a crime fiction or mystery. They're set in the 1930s. So what I'm really interested in is that period between the wars, uh, the political and social turmoil that uh, actually led to World War II. So what, what, what I found is that it's a very underwritten period in history, well, and, and mainly that's because it's bookended by the very glamorous 1920s, where you have the wonderful fashion and the, the party atmosphere that people love to write in, and then the dramatic, very dramatic war years. And so certainly in Australia, the 1930s is quite underwritten. Um, but I find it actually a particularly fascinating period because I'm interested in what got us to the war, what got us to a situation where so many people were murdered, mm -hmm. uh, and what got civilization and humanity to to that place, and were there places where we could have diverted from that path? Um, so. The 1930s is is particularly fascinating for that time because it wasn't a quick build. It 
you know, we didn't wake up one morning and suddenly the Nazis were there. They were building power from the 20s. Yeah, early 20s. Um, and, and for many, many years we ignored it or we let it grow or we facilitated it. And it's those sort of things that I like to examine through murder mysteries in the book. So Roland Sinclair is my, um, my protagonist, my hero. He is a young man at the beginning of the series, a very young man. Um, he is the youngest son of a very wealthy pastoral family. So in Australia, the pastoral families were, uh, I suppose in, in America you'd call them ranchers, but they're not really ranchers because they raise sheep and not uh, cattle. And they were fabulously wealthy because wool was so expensive uh, in that period. And even through the Depression, many of them just became richer. Uh, they, the way I like to describe it is they had more money than you could possibly spend in a single generation. And so they were completely taken care of. The entire family was completely taken care of in terms of money. Roman Sinclair is the youngest son. So in Australia, traditionally, what would happen is the farm and the um, and the and the management of family wealth, etc. All the authority would fall to the eldest son, and the youngest son would then be free to be a dilettante, which which uh, Roland is. Uh, he's an artist. Uh, he just wants to paint at the beginning of the series, and he surrounds himself with artists who, unlike his family, which are very wealthy and established and conservative, uh, the artists of Australia in that period tended to be bohemian and left-wing and um, sympathetic to communists, etc. And so he walks that line between his friends and his family all his life because he has the tug of the establishment and the tug of the New Age progressive movement as well. Um, so he was a very interesting character to place into the middle of a crime fiction, or a useful character in a lot of ways, because he has access to every strata of society. Uh, so the 1930s, particularly in Australia, but all over the world, was much more segregated in terms of class than it is today. Mm -hmm. um, and. So having a character like Roland Sinclair means that I can give him access to the upper classes, to um, to the establishment, but also have him trusted by the working classes um, and the um, and the and the basically the the lower poor classes as well because he's an artist and he um, and he has friends within that community. So that's a brief background of where the the series sits. Uh, he he starts. Uh, the, I opened the series in about 1932, or just before 1932. And when I started writing it, I had intended to write one book for every year between 1932 and 1945. But but <laughs> I have just finished book ten, and I've only got to 1935. <laughs> Um, or just at the end of 1935, because there was just so much material and so many things that I wanted to talk about in that era. So what is your latest book about? The latest book? The latest book that's come out in the U.S. 
uh, is called Give the Devil His Due, and it centres around car racing. Oh, how cool. So, Roland, uh, he's famous for having a Mercedes-Benz. Uh, he has a bright yellow Mercedes-Benz, which he won in a card game when he was at Oxford. And it, his love for his car has been a feature of the book. Um, and he, um, he decides there's a, a, an invitational, a celebrity invitational in, in Australia where they basically have a celebrity car race in aid of the Red Cross. Um, and he decides to take his yellow Mercedes onto the racetrack to see what she can do. Um, and of course, then the, a journalist covering the race is brutally murdered in a waxworks, and things unfold from there. Um, dun dun dun! <laughs> <laughs> so, it, you know, the, the books are always, uh, even though I'm examining some really dark subjects and some really awful times in in world history uh the books tend to be to, to be light and not light in terms of content but in light light in terms of tone and that's mainly down to roland uh, the character he is turned out to be a man with a sense of humor um and the way he he sees the world is almost like if everybody is mad, we're <laughs> surrounded by mad people. Um, so uh, his his perspective uh, often adds a certain levity um, to everything going on. And, but he's also a man who who believes very much in integrity and justice, which is why he manages to find himself embroiled in these cases, which, strictly speaking, are none of his business. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's most most uh, amateur detectives. Um, we don't have a lot of time. Do you have any online events coming up? And could you give your uh, different social medias? Uh, yeah, sure. My uh, online events coming. I do, but you know, I they haven't been locked in. So I know that uh, I'll be participating in a panel. I think on the fifth of May uh, with other mystery writers, um, but. I haven't got any details because everybody's scrabbling and a lot of these things haven't been locked in. Um, I, I have a website, www.solarigentle.com, uh, very easy, um, and um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Solari Gentle. I'm really easy to find um, I, and, and I'm happy to talk to anyone who wants to talk to me. Great. Um, so that's... Um, I don't. I don't defend myself with publicists or uh, or agents. You can just talk directly to me if you if that takes your fancy, or if you want to ask me anything about the books or uh, or questions. I mean, a lot of my greatest ideas and greatest details come from readers. Um, I'm at at the moment. I have the privilege of corresponding with a gentleman of 94 um, who knew a lot of the people I mention in my book. And he gives me wonderful little personal details. Cool. Um, about I want to thank you for being on the show and um, taking the time out from your writing. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Sherry. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry.